Are you ready for good talk? And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here with Bruce Anderson and Chantelle Bear. It's a Friday good talk session. And we have, you know, this program has been based on our discussions around politics, usually Canadian politics, sometimes provincial, sometimes federal. Sometimes we go outside of our boundaries, talk about American politics, talk about UK politics. And all of those would be good uh, to talk about today, any one of those areas, and we'll probably get to some of them. But that's not how we're going to start. We're going to do something a little different today. I want to talk about Carl Tremblay. Now, I'm not sure how many Canadians outside the province of Quebec have heard of Carl Tremblay before. But he passed away this week on Wednesday. Prostate cancer, 47 years old. Cultural icon for French Canadians and English Canadians inside Quebec. He's the lead singer of a group called the Cowboy Francon. Extremely popular. Sold 16 albums over the last 20 years. Performed in front of tens of thousands of fans. Last night at the Bell Centre in Montreal, where the Canadians play, they, they kind of raised a sweater. Well, they actually hung a sweater with number 76 on it, a Hab sweater. And 76 was the number that Carl Trombley used to wear when he played hockey, and he played a lot of you know, kind of beer league hockey. And the arena was quiet. They sang his songs. They had a kind of light parade. It was very moving to watch it. But as I said, most of Canada never heard of this guy. But he's being compared to, and perhaps unfairly in the sense that he may even be bigger than Gord Downey was for a lot of English Canadians. So the province of Quebec has been devastated by this news. Lots of things happening over the last you know, 48 hours. Chantel, tell us why this fellow was so connected to that province. Oh, boy. Um, I guess I'm going to start with uh, an anecdote of where I was when the news broke. Uh, so I was sitting on a bus on Park, big street in uh, Montreal, uh, at rush hour. And everyone is on his or her phone, as is the, the, the fashion. And I'm looking at my phone, and the news breaks. And instantly, I, I, I text a friend to say, Quebec is in mourning. Um, this is happening. And then I looked around, and I saw people's face change as they were looking, scrolling down on their phones. It's it's really a strange thing to watch. Why so instantly? And everything that has happened since then, there is no surprise. It's like being told uh, René Lévesque has died, for those of us who are old enough. You know what's going to happen next. People will be crying. I sit in a radio studio every morning, and um, yesterday morning the host started, the show opened on a song. Uh, by Le Cowboy Fringa. And then uh, he said, for the first time since I've started hosting this show, I've had to ask the assistant producer to bring a box of tissues in the studio uh, because this is what is going to happen. I heard him this morning uh, listen to what was happening or what had happened at the hockey game. And then when he picked up again, his voice was breaking. And he said, I can't get over this cold, my voice is never completely coming back. Well, I was sitting at home. I've worked with this guy for a number of years now thinking, no, 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 no. That is not why your voice was breaking. You're just trying to get over this uh, this moment. Um, intergenerational would be the first thing you would say about it. I uh, listen to Les Cowboys Fringants, especially when I'm down and I need to... Uh, be picked up by 
songs that actually make sense of what you see in the subtext of all of the things that you you see when you cover politics, but you don't talk about because we are not here to deliver emotion. We're here to deliver facts and analysis. My son, whose generation is very much the generation of Les Cowboys Fringants, listens obviously to them. My grandson, who is 10 years old, has gone to a show of Les Cowboys Fringants uh, and sings those songs. So that's a, a very large span. Now, people outside Quebec uh, are probably used to uh, the notion that when something like that happens and the singer is in play, um, they they think of Gilles Vigneault, they think of Mon Pays, songs that are nationalistic in a very Quebec sense. This is different. This is this is Quebec in modernity. Uh, anyone and, and those songs are universal, even if they, as they are obviously uh, based on a Quebec flavor. I was listening yesterday to uh, Jean-François Lisée, a former journalist, but former leader of the Parti Québécois, who said the first time he heard the song called L'Amérique Pleure, which is America in Tears, he was driving and he had to stop his car to listen to it. Well, I wasn't driving, but I just played it over and over and over again. This song came out... um, during the pandemic, towards closer to the tail end in the beginning, it was written over that time. It's basically a truck driver who is describing his experience of driving on highways between the U.S. and Canada. Uh, and he describes the America he sees, and it puts into words so many thoughts that you have when you watch what's happening, not just in the, in the U.S., but also in Canada, but in very everyday terms. He talks about the chicken soup at the truck stops that is no longer homemade. There's not a love that goes into it anymore, he says. Uh, and then he parks his truck and, and sits and looks in his rearview mirror and cries. Um, it, it's a really, really great song, but it touches so many things. I think it, it uh, and you, you say outside Quebec and not too many people. I would say most Francophone Canadians know Les Cowboys Fringants, as do uh, because they were a big thing in France too. People couldn't understand some of the references. One of the songs about um, shooting stars, Les Etoiles Filantes, kind of told me what was going to be coming in my son's life uh, you know, the kids, uh, the belly, the mortgage, um, and Passepartout, which is the Quebec's uh, Sesame Street for my son's generation. So in France, they wouldn't know about Passepartout. Uh, uh, but they knew all the words when they, when the Cowboy Fringant were giving a show in France. Audiences knew the words to the songs. Those That's really rare. And I don't think they treated Les Cowboy Fringant like this curiosity, as they often do from our Quebec cousins. So I'm going to leave the musical expert on this panel to pick up from there. We will. We'll get Bruce's thoughts on this. Uh, it was uh, the uh, Les Etoiles uh, song that they sang in the Bell Centre last night, the, the crowd. Bruce, um, you are kind of the musical expert of the three of us. If there can be, if we can use that term of any of us, uh, that might closer. be a low bar, but uh, I'll <laughs> yeah. take my shot at this. Uh, I grew up in a little town called Valleyfield, not far from Montreal. And um, despite the name, <clears throat> it was a very francophone community. It remains a very francophone community. I grew up in, surrounded by francophones, learned to speak French. Um, but it was in my early teen years, I think, the first time, maybe mid-teens, the first time that I went to um, what's what's been called in Quebec a boîte à chanson. Uh, there aren't really analogs in other parts of the country, at least not like those. And these are uh, bars, pubs, basically, where a series of musicians typically will take the stage and sing. And the most um, impactful thing for me then was the the style of music it was so it was political it was funny it was culturally kind of derived it was really about how quebecers felt it employed uh, what s- some people dismiss as um 
Joao, a slang version of French, but which I love. Uh, I find quite unique um, and something that that Quebecers take pride in, I think, especially when it's put in the form of popular music, music. And by popular music, I mean music that resonates with people. Um, that phase, which was in the 70s, um, is often described when people are talking about Les Cowboys Fringants as the traditional, and they're the neo-traditional. They took that uh, style of music and added a little bit more rock influences to it. But for me, when I was listening to it yesterday, um, I was I found myself drawn more to the uh, the the traditional uh, of the neo-traditional uh, versions that they have. Those songs um, are still so remarkable. Um, and as, as Chantal said, multi-generational. I sent um, my kids, my grown kids, um, some clips yesterday. Uh, one of them was, to Chantal's point about the fame and the popularity of this band, uh, in France, in Belgium as well, I understand. But I sent a clip of a concert that they gave in Paris, and they were singing a song called Le Tune d'Aton. Beautiful song. Um, I, I think I'm going to tweet out the, a link to it, including the lyrics, so people can understand the style of lyrical writing, because it's colloquial, uh, it's funny, it's often political, uh, it's very human, um, and um, I think those are the things that make it so universally popular for people who can get inside the lyrics and understand and get past the joie references and and also to the to the individual Eric Tremblay when you see him singing this song on that stage in Paris, and people are, are so into that music that he feels obliged to turn the mic back to the crowd, not just as some musicians do sometimes for a, a phrase or a couple of words, but they're frustrated if he's not giving them the right to sing almost that entire song and just be a backing vocalist for the audience. You really don't see that very often. In English Canada, you would sort of look at uh, Blue Rodeo and the Tragically Hip as examples of musicians who come from a similar style and have that similar cultural connection with Canadians in part because the stories that they tell feel Canadian, feel local, feel like they're told in the language and the dialect of people who live here. Um, so it's a, it's a great loss for, um, uh, for that style of music, uh, obviously for that band but the body of work that people can listen to and hopefully will uh, listen to. Um, I listened to Le Chaka Hector this morning, uh, just a very funny song that kind of reminded me of growing up in Quebec and drinking beer and uh, thinking about the moment and not thinking too much about the future. There's lots that people will get to continue to enjoy in the music from that uh, from that group and the uh, and the stylings of Eric Tremblay. Chantal, can I ask you? Um, uh, you both mentioned how uh, you know he didn't ignore politics. Politics was was in his his music, but was he political? Well, not not in in. I'm I'm guessing if we lived in a very political era in Quebec, and I would describe a very political era as. Uh, uh, a time when the future of the province, the political future of the province is in play, uh, the the cowboy fringant would have been part and parcel uh, of of the, the the fabric of that conversation. That is not the era we live in uh, these days. Uh, they are, they have a song though that is, is that many Quebecers know that is called Lettre à René Lévesque. Uh, which is a letter to the former premier. And I'm not as familiar with it as uh, with some other songs, but I understand that it, it says, you know, did you think we would turn out to be kind of so not necessarily up to what you hoped for? And that doesn't really mean sovereignty because the Cowboy Fringant were very much into issues like very early on uh, climate and the environment. 
but also social justice and social inequalities. Uh, and that shines through a lot of their songs. Now, remember, Quebec lives in a, a different place economically than it did when I was a kid and probably when Bruce was growing up in Valley Field. But it's not that long ago uh, that Quebecers remember how tough economically life was and how collectively uh, their economic standing of Francophone Quebecers was low. So the the the, the social uh, justice uh, themes still resonate, even if our kids are a lot more comfortable than my grandparents, uh, who were blue collar workers, would have been. Um, I think that their work superseded uh, those differences, as to do the work of others in Quebec uh, between, you know, federalists, sovereignists. No one was claiming the cowboy fangal for any camp yesterday. That wasn't happening. Uh, this is not. Uh, they 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 belong to everyone, and it's a part of everyone's soul uh, that was lost. But this was also something that Quebecers knew was possibly coming, uh, in the sense that all summer uh, they had had to cancel some concerts, maintain some. They gave an extraordinary one at the Festival de Tite Quebec on the Plains of Abraham, where thousands and thousands of people were, and. It was just a love fest, uh, very um, bittersweet. It made you wish you'd been there. But uh, and they also gave one concert where he was he was really not feeling so good, and so all members of the band he had to sit to do whatever he he was you know singing he had to deliver, and all members of the band just took chairs. And they gave the concert on chairs uh, saying, you didn't come here to watch us dance, did you? <laughs> so it's um, it's news no one wanted, but it's not news that took people by surprise. Uh, and I think somewhere there is a sense, you know, when people die and you think, at least I spent some time telling them that I, they were important in our in in our lives. I think most Quebecers would feel they had time to send that message. But um, the premier offered a, a, a state funeral, which is uh, something that all opposition parties support. The family will have to decide. It may be that uh, François Legault was not as much in Les Cowboys Fringants as many other Quebecers, but he certainly uh, totally got that they had to make make that offer. Uh, and we'll see where it goes from there. But I think, you know, I've been humming Cowboy Fringant songs for the past two days. <laughs> and every time I turn the radio on, there's another one. Uh, and I think that's going to continue. There were last night on top of what happened at the hockey game, uh, there were gatherings uh, at the foot of Mont-Royal in L'Assomption, uh, in, in Quebec City. And I, I'm guessing... The weather helped. Let's be serious here. We're having a nice spell, which is good. But um, I think we're we're going to be into this uh, probably for a couple more days. Uh, and then those songs uh, and what the band does going forward uh, will be something we'll all see. You know, uh, you've both uh, touched us with your uh, not only your stories about, uh, about Carl Tremblay, but also... Um, your sense of the uh, emotion of all this uh, and the impact it's had on the soul of, uh, well, I guess the soul of a people, as you say, it's it, it's mainly Quebec, but francophones outside Quebec uh, are feeling the same thing, and, and some uh, and some clearly in in Europe um, where there was a, a strong fan base. Um, you know, the, I read about how in one of the at eight o'clock yesterday morning on the Thursday morning. All the radio stations in Montreal all played the same song at the same time. You know, it's it's quite remarkable. And in some of the ways you've described it, 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 it it's kind of similar to that last year with uh, with Gord Downey. You know, he was sick. He was very sick, brain cancer in his in his case. But they went on that final tour, and it was unbelievably emotional. And the final concert was in Kingston, the hometown of the Tragically Hip. And, you know, there were, you know, 12, 13,000 people there and it was televised nationally and it was, you know, it was quite something. 
Anyway, I, I know this is uh, not what we usually do on, on, on Good Talk, but uh, I'm glad we did this because uh, you gave us a sense of uh, parts of, uh, of this country that I, that I wasn't aware of, and I'm sure many of our listeners weren't either. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, then we'll come back and we'll, uh, we'll talk what we usually talk about. We'll talk uh, a little Canadian politics right after this. Welcome back. You're listening to uh, Good Talk, the Friday episode of The Bridge. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Chantelle Bear and Bruce Anderson are with me. Um, you're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or your favorite podcast platform, or you're watching us on our YouTube channel. Glad to have you with us, uh, whatever platform you are plugged into right now. Um, okay, back to the... Uh, the reality of Canadian politics, and you know, there are a number of issues that we could we could talk about. I want to start on 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 kind of where we are in the Canadian position on the on the Israel Hamas war because it seems to be uh, causing a serious disruption within two of the three major parties, and those are the two who are kind of holding the the, the Liberals in power, the Liberals obviously, and the NDP. And both parties seem to have a, a dividing line within them uh, about issues, whether it's the war itself, the ceasefire question, and the divisions are strong and 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 could cause real problems. And that's what I want to get at. So, Bruce, why don't you uh, why don't you start us on this in terms of uh, what you're hearing, what you're seeing, and and how difficult a situation this could be for those two parties to manage the situation and, in effect, keep the Liberals in power. Hmm. Well, I haven't really thought about it in, in the context of um, keeping Liberals in power or maintaining the um, uh, the relationship between the parties. And, and maybe maybe I will now that you've asked the question, but I, I tend to think that all parties are struggling with the uh, with a combination of reflexes and uh, understandings of what's happening in in the in the region, uh, I think that part of the struggle that they have is linked to the fact that um, it wasn't very many years ago that what was really in prominence in our political conversation was a a real rise in Islamophobia. You you will remember both of you. I know that. 2015 uh, wasn't that election, but 19 was an election where um, there was quite a conversation uh, about uh, Islamophobia and um, the treatment of Muslims in the country. And so I think for a lot of a lot of voters whose history or knowledge of history and the history in particular of anti-Semitism, they have developed an understanding of the history of Islamophobia and that that is something that's very prominent in their minds as they think about what's happening in uh, in Gaza. Um, for people who uh, are perhaps older, so I, I am speaking about a generational difference, there is a, a deeper and longer understanding perhaps of anti-Semitism, and they see lots and lots of evidence of a rise in anti-Semitism. Um, which, uh, given their knowledge of the Holocaust, is you know is something that isn't more important than Islamophobia, but is uh, provokes much deeper feelings of fear and anxiety and a sense that that things can go terribly badly very quickly. Um, so I do think that there's an intergenerational difference in uh, the connection to Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. Both are important issues to be dealt with. Both are uh, prominent in the way in which politicians are being urged to act, urged to speak, and both influence the way mainstream voters are thinking about what's the right thing to do in this situation. The second thing that I think is really challenging for people in politics is um, if you're not one of the politicians who can make a difference in the resolution of this conflict, uh, but you still feel like you should opine on it, um, 
it can really sound like people offering platitudes, but not much uh, of real value in terms of saving lives, in terms of solving uh, these perpetual conflicts. And and I I suspect there are people who, who feel quite deeply about this who are kind of getting tired of hearing politicians talk about it if they don't really have any material ideas on what to do to um, save lives that are being lost now and prevent a more murders by Hamas of Israelis. And the last thing I think is that the the Jewish community in Canada and broadly um, sees this as a situation where uh, Hamas murdered and took hostages uh, among their population. And that that is what started this and the release of those hostages and the eradication of that particular threat, Hamas, is necessary to their safety. And so when they hear politicians say Israel has the right to defend itself, but then there's a but after that, their instinct, not unsurprisingly, is to say, but why is there a but after that? On the other hand, there are many people of good faith who want Israel to feel protected, to feel supported, and to defend itself uh, properly, who see these images of uh, death of innocent civilians in uh, Gaza, and they want that to stop. Um, so it's a it's a paralyzing problem for a lot of people. Um, it's perplexing for politicians to know what to say that might be useful, and. Probably it's the case that more of them are talking about it than are being useful on it, and that's causing some friction in politics. But I think they all feel it. Uh, I don't think it's a partisan divide particularly. At least I haven't seen much evidence of it at this point in time. Chantal. So I, I'm going to bring it uh, back to the political arena because I believe that uh, as this conflict goes on, it does have the potential to affect the dynamics in the House of Commons, to move the debate from the streets. And those statements, I agree with Bruce, uh, there are days when you could dispense with uh, spreading your wisdom about uh, the news uh, in Israel since uh, our politicians by and large are not uh, experts in the issue and have very little to contribute to the solution over there. We saw this week that positions uh, here on the streets, on the ground, are becoming more entrenched. Anyone who looked at the pictures of Justin Trudeau's visit to Vancouver uh, and the kind of reception he got uh, in not one but two restaurants at the hand of uh, pro-Palestine demonstrators, uh, speak to that. I Looking at the both events, it felt to me like positions here were even more entrenched in a visceral way as uh, over the course of the debate over vaccines, which actually affected people in a real factual way, not as part of a larger debate. And for obvious reasons, the Jewish community uh, is feeling very targeted. Justin Trudeau's comments this week uh, and the tone that he used to warn Israel were widely seen in the Jewish community in this country as insensitive in the sense that the, the general feeling was that the prime minister uh, had, at the end of the day, for political reasons of trying to balance both sides, painted a larger target on the backs of the Jewish community here at home. Uh, that his tone implied that uh, war crimes were being committed, which is not what he said. But if you read the transcript of the remarks versus the delivery of them, tone does make a difference, and the tone was striking. How it uh, plays out on Parliament Hill? Well, within the NDP, there are MPs and party members who are uncomfortable, I'm going to use that word, with the notion, uh, increasingly uncomfortable, with the notion that uh, the NDP should support the Liberals on confidence vote on the basis of the refusal of the government to call for a ceasefire. The NDP was the first party in the House to call for a ceasefire. The Bloc has now joined uh, the NDP, but it's not playing out inside the Bloc 
Quebecois and the way that it plays within the NDP. And we've seen it in some of the events uh, surrounding the NDP caucus at Queen's Park, for instance. I'm convinced that the NDP government uh, of David DB and BC is also feeling those strains. So there could come a day, uh, unless you assume that this uh, event, this this war is going to come to a quick end, which I not convinced will happen. There could come a day when there are NDP MPs who, on principle, for pro-Palestine reasons, are saying we don't want to be seen as supporting this government that's not calling for a ceasefire. On the other side, uh, you have a very a deep red line on the part of some members of Justin Trudeau's caucus who are from or in contact with the Jewish community, that the words ceasefire uh, are they to be pronounced by the federal government absent a large international consensus? Uh, and by that, I mean, if the should the U.S. in particular, but other allies see a change in padding that leads them to call for ceasefire, that's a different issue. But absent that, I think there is a real possibility that should Justin Trudeau cross that line, there will be resignations from inside this caucus. That is going to happen. And the prime minister knows it. Uh, and I think if he didn't know it before a statement this week, he would have cause to totally know it now uh, because the, the, the backlash uh, reached all the way inside this caucus on, on those remarks. What that means is if you look at the dynamics in the House of Commons, uh, it means that uh, it's another complication, but it is one that neither the NDP nor the Liberals have any control over. There is very little that either of them can do to bring their parties closer. Yes, our MPs were unanimous in supporting a number of resolutions, but there are increasingly more entrenched positions on both sides. Uh, and I think it's only going to get harder uh, and not easier over the next few months. You know, and if you if you don't think this can cause problems inside a political party, then you don't need look no further than the United Kingdom. I've been here in the UK for the last little while, uh, flying back this weekend. But, it, you know, Keir Starmer is the leader of the Labour Party and is miles ahead in the polls, at least was, uh, is now confronted with real problems within inside his Labour Party. Uh, and people are, you know, they're not threatening to resign. They are resigning. Um, and, and so, you know, that kind of, uh, that can really <laughs> throw a spanner in the works, as they say over here. And that, you know, uh, you, you kind of look at that situation and wonder whether that could impact what's happening uh, in Canada or whether something similar could happen in, in Canada. Um, what about the conservatives? Yeah, so go ahead. One of the ways to avoid it, uh, I think, is for politicians in Canada, leaders in particular, to recognize the limits of their moral authority to opine on this, which isn't to say that they shouldn't offer moral opinions. But um, to Chantal's point, um, the tone uh, with which the prime minister talked about the his expectation of Israel, maximum restraint, the way that he delivered that message couldn't help but uh, ignite frustration within his uh, within that part of the caucus that Chantal was referring to, who either are from or very close to uh, the Jewish community. Can we just because, be can we just be clear on this when we're talking about tone? We're not talking about the words he said. No, but it's the I way thought, he said them. Right. That's right. And I think this is the thing is that it, it is that if you if you just wrote what the statement was and what the uh, what the proposition of the government was in terms of how you would get to um, a peaceful solution or a solution that worked for um, the survival of both uh, communities involved in this conflict, uh, I think people would would welcome that. It's when politicians feel drawn into uh, debating the hourly or the daily uh, events and then putting a finger up tonally on one side of the conversation or the other, that they're asking for uh, problems 
that they can't really manage. And I think that this is, you know, we've seen it a couple of times for the government. Um, when the foreign affairs minister last week called for a, a ceasefire and seemed to be implying that there might be a day when there would be Hamas at the table with, with Israel and other stakeholders. I, I don't, I don't think that's exactly what she was implying, but it, it not surprisingly made uh, folks who see this uh, from an Israeli standpoint and the Jewish community say, well, how does a, a group that is uh, that is declared to be a terrorist organization get to sit at a table and negotiate with the targets of their terrorism? Um, so it's an argument for caution in uh the presumption of some sort of moral high ground and an expectation that people want you to opine on the morality of what's happening day in, day out. Um, there is a measure of that for sure. And if you're only on social media, you feel that the demand for a response and a posture uh, extremely strongly. Uh, but at the end of the day, articulating what your position is in defense of Israel and it, around the eradication of Hamas is a pretty important one to the Jewish community, and I understand why. Expressing your views on the defense of civilian life is a very important principle, and I understand why. At, after you've said those things, if you have something to say about how to get to an endpoint that's better than where we're at today, say that. But it is, to Chantal's point, going to come about because stakeholders other than Canada are going to find that path. Uh, and so supporting and working with those other stakeholders rather than leaving anybody with the impression that um, our, our our kind of voice as a country is really going to be influential in this, I think is a, I don't want to say safer because I don't believe in telling politicians to do safe things necessarily, but I think it's maybe a wiser path in this particular instance. Before we leave this, um, do the conservatives you know, agree with or not agree with their position? Are they speaking at least in the luxury of a United Caucus on this? So far, um, the, 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 the party that is overtly more pro-Israel in the House of Commons is the Conservative Party. And that was also true of Stephen Harper's government uh, back when the Conservatives were in power. And the, the, there has not been, in public at least, a, a sense that the tensions within the Conservative caucus are at the same level as within the Liberal caucus. Although there is diversity, and certainly diversity of perspectives uh, inside Kapolyev's caucus as well. But it's easier to be the leader of the opposition or the leader of the Bloc Québécois and not to be asked daily. Uh, so... What's your take on what's happening in Gaza today? That being said, we are all old enough to know what difference television and images made to the Vietnam War. And this war is unfolding live uh, on many screens, fake pictures, but also real pictures. Uh, and for Canadian politicians, it's going to be a challenge uh, not to, 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 to not comment or not comment too quickly until they have uh, some grasp of the hard to get facts as to what's happening on the ground to things that are going to be pretty horrible, I suspect. Uh, and, and that will be repeatedly horrible. So, uh, it, you know, everybody wants to be on the moral high ground. It may be difficult to find going forward. Especially when you have this issue of what's real, what's fake, misinformation every time you turn around. Um, it's a you know, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult just for the ordinary citizen who's trying to, you know, follow this story, understand it, try to put it in some degree of context. I mean there Well, and the broader uh, rise of anti Semitism, which isn't um, which was happening before this conflict. But which is which is really really prominent right now, and um, and I'm talking not only about the, the horrible incidents of people shooting at schools um, in Canada, but 
uh, you know, some of the comments of Elon Musk on X or Twitter, which reached very, very large numbers of people. Um, these are, uh, you know, these are very, very provocative and they're quite rightly frightening um, uh, to Jewish people. Uh, yesterday, I noticed that IBM decided to take itself off that platform from an advertising standpoint because it discovered that its ads were being associated or linked or uh, uh, put in proximity to uh, anti-Semitic hate. And, um, you know, you look at that and you look at uh, what's been happening on TikTok and, um, you know, you do have to uh, recognize that separate and apart from the events that are happening right now in, in the Middle East, uh, Jewish people have uh, very, very good reasons to be concerned about rising anti-Semitism and to expect uh, m- more allyship uh, across the board in that regard, which is a, another layer of complexity and, and challenge. Go ahead, Chantal. Nor should we be surprised uh, that uh, Canadian public opinion or sections of Canadian public opinion are very polarized on this. I have a friend and colleague who served as uh, ombudsman to Radio-Canada. So this is the person who, who gets complaints about unfair treatment of this piece or that piece of news or that interview and has to kind of look into it and answer uh, or explain why the report was that way. And he was telling me, and this is in a time when things were, they're never completely quiet uh, between Israel and Palestine, but we were not in, in a conflict like this. And he was telling me that one of the things he discovered was the one issue uh, that draws, you know, if you had to make a percentage, the biggest percentage uh, of of complaints always dealt with the Israel-Palestine issue. Uh, not with, you know, you get your share of uh, he's a federalist, she's a sovereignist, or this is tilted, yes, par for the course. But even more so, even in a time when nothing... Uh, exacerbates passions. This issue, uh, whenever uh, someone touches on it, would raise red flags on both sides. So imagine now, there is nothing you can do now in a news report in Canada on this issue that will not draw complaints of bias from either side. I mean, the, the CBC was accused of being pro amos by one of the leading political parties in this country, the Conservatives. So it's, 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 it's an untenable uh, proposition. And my fear is that we are losing the capacity to have a conversation uh, on this issue because both sides are becoming so entrenched. And I'm talking about in Canada uh, that it, it's, you know, you, you can't even look for common ground because it's a non-starter to come from a different perspective in a conversation uh, with the the, the entrenched sides. Uh, And that is kind of scary. Um, I saw that uh, claim by a conservative member, um, which to me just showed the basic ignorance of that particular person in understanding how a newsroom works, uh, any newsroom. Uh, But in, in terms of you know the, the 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 kind of community is split, but so <laughs> from what I've heard, so are many newsrooms are split on the way this story is being covered, and it's uh, it's it's angry in there and it's ugly in there, in some places, um, and uh, it's a tough story. And I you know all I can do with Chantel is. Uh, you know, is underlined what you said about <laughs> there is no other issue that competes with this at any level. And in all the years I was at the CBC, it was unquestionably the issue that prompted the most uh, complaints. And it was always a tough one, always a tough one to deal with. Um, okay, uh, we've got to take our final break. Come back right after this. And we're back for the final segment of uh, Good Talk for this week. Chantel and Bruce are here. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Um, 
Okay, we've got a couple of minutes left. I mean, this potentially is a big week coming up. You know, economic statement, pharmacare, wither pharmacare. Uh, is something going to happen on, uh, uh, you know, on that? But in terms of those two, you know, like budget's always the big statement by the Minister of Finance each year and, you know, unveils all kinds of stuff. But increasingly over the last 10 or 15 years, the economic statement has played a big role too and is looked at in by many as a kind of a mini budget because things happen in it. Um, what should we... What should we expect? And once again, we don't have a lot of time, but we have some time. Uh, Bruce, you can pick one or the other. You can pick economic statement, you pick pharmacare, or maybe they they work together. I think they work together. I think the the answer to, for the Liberals, the answer to the NDP pressure on single-payer pharmacare, which is a very expensive idea. What does that mean? Got, sorry? What does it mean, single-payer pharmacare? Like Medicare. Yeah, so basically what our situation right now on the cost of prescription drugs is some number that's in the area of 25 million Canadians have through group benefit plans uh, access to coverage for their pharmaceutical, uh, their prescription drug needs. Some people don't. Uh, some people have coverage under provincial plans if they're older, for example, that sort of thing. Um, the... NDP are pushing for government to replace the prescription drug coverage that people have through their group plans, their employer or their workplace plans with a government program that provides free drugs for everybody, regardless of whether they already have coverage under those plans. Um, I think the liberals have been looking at it and others have been looking at it and I've been doing work on that for the sake of, uh, of disclosure for uh, companies that provide those benefit plans. They look at it and say, "Well, why would you why would you replace the coverage that people already enjoy, which seems to work pretty well?" And these plans offer people uh, eye care and dental care and uh, massage therapy if they need it, physiotherapy, that sort of thing, uh, with a government plan, which would cost an awful lot more money and might actually reduce the number of drugs that people have coverage for because of the scale of the program and the cost of the program. So. Um, that's the single payer difference that the NDP wants is uh, one program run by government, paid for by a government that covers everybody the same way. Um, the people who argue against that program say, why wouldn't you just put a program in place that covers people who don't have coverage right now? Helps them, saves a lot of money. Um, the most logical position for the government to take in terms of its political circumstance right now and its fiscal circumstance right now is to say no to single payer, uh, but we can do more to help people who don't have coverage right now. The NDP has said uh, publicly, I think this week, that they're drawing a line uh, around this issue and they don't accept the government's proposals that have been made behind closed doors so far, um, but it remains to be seen um, how that will play itself out either in the fall economic statement next week or before the end of the year, which is the timetable for resolving this friction between these two parties. As we talked about this last week, I think it was last week, I can't imagine a scenario where uh, Jagmeet Singh says, I've caused an election to happen over this division between the liberals wanting to do something that's more of a fill the gaps and the and our preference for a government covers everybody program, because I don't see any real upside for the NDP in it. And also because the NDP would probably be held responsible by many progressive voters for triggering the election of Pierre Polyev as uh, as prime minister of the country. Um, that's what the polls tell us would happen now. All right, Chantel, he's left you two minutes. I'm not sure uh, in any event because of what Bruce explained that uh, about millions of Canadians having private coverage that it's uh, such a vote winner uh, on the ground. It's probably more important within the confines of an NDP gathering uh, or a convention than it is in real electoral life. When Medicare came in, it only came in because provinces bought in. Uh, there is not a lot of provincial buy-in coming the way of uh, 
the kind of program the NDP is asking for. I'm not even hearing the NDP premiers clamor for it. Um, so it's 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 not just the federal government that needs to get into the act. It's provinces absent that. It's not going to go anywhere. As for, um, I took Jagmeet Singh's newser this week a bit differently in the sense that he said we rejected the first draft um, of the legislation that the liberals presented to us. But he also implied that the two parties were still talking. And I saw it as a preemptive move to say that basically means it's not going to be much in the fiscal update. And we know that. And clear, we're not going to precipitate the parliamentary crisis the next day. But that being said, can the NDP even get an election over this? Because if that were the reason for the NDP to uh, stop supporting the government, or even to move non-confidence on that basis. Well, the Bloc Québécois is not going to support this idea of a new pharmacare program. Quebec has a mixed uh, hybrid program, and no one is saying that the NDP um, is on a great path to uh, replace it with some idea of its own uh, that involves the federal government. So I I believe that what Mr. Singh did this week was basically to say, uh, we're still working on it. Uh, Call me back later, but Tuesday afternoon, do not ask me to say I'm going to bring down the government over uh, what is in the fiscal update. We'll see. I mean, we had a parliamentary crisis in 2008 over an economic statement that would have withdrawn some funding, public funding for political parties. No one had seen that coming. So you never know in a minority parliament. But in theory, I frankly am not packing my bags for a January election. That 2008 thing was was quite something. That was that was a real that that was quite a week. Um, All right. We got to uh, we got to leave it at that for this day. Uh, Good conversation. I'm really glad we had the conversation about Carl Trombley at the beginning of uh, of today's show. Uh, Have a good weekend. Take care, both of you, Chantel and Bruce. Uh, I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Grab your copy of The Buzz tomorrow. Nationalnewswatch.com slash newsletter to subscribe. Costs nothing. And uh, we're happy to bring it to you. Uh, Take care. And. have a good weekend. See you on Monday.